Well, we only have two Bible studies left after this. We have um, next week, and then uh, second years have tests the last week of April, so we won't meet then. And our last one will be first week of May. So um, I haven't decided. We, we finished up with the writings of Paul um, with uh, Hebrews last time. So we're going to uh, go over first and second Peter today. And I haven't decided whether to do first, second, third John or James for next week. So we'll decide. And then, you know, for two years, I was hoping we'd have a little more time in Revelation. We've been working towards that. And we end up with one Bible study in the book of Revelation again. So I'm bummed out about that, but that's just the way it is. So um, anyway, we'll go over First and Second Peter today. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you again for a time when we can um, focus on you. We know that you're close. Help us to open our eyes uh, to see you, and especially this uh, such important subject here, what happens to those in the very end who are opposed to you. Uh, certainly very important as our, we understand who you are in character, and uh, please give us light on this subject. Amen. Well, when we talked about Mark, Remember, that's uh, supposedly Peter's gospel, and we talked a little bit about the life of Peter. And I think it's interesting as we consider First and Second Peter, and we just remember the man who did so many things, said so many things, when Jesus was walking around, the man that chopped off the ear of Malchus, and the, the one who was always opposed to the type of kingdom that Jesus wanted to usher in. And we can just see here in the words of this gospel what a changed person Peter was. Or he would say, but even if you should suffer... For doing what is right, how happy you are. Uh, was Peter willing to suffer uh, as Jesus was grabbed by the guards? He wasn't. I mean, he denied Jesus because uh, he was afraid. And now he says, do not be afraid of anyone and do not worry, but have reverence for Christ in your hearts and honor him as Lord. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you. Was he ready at all times to answer in uh, the night that Jesus died? Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Keep your conscience clear. And he would say your beauty, real beauty, should consist of your true inner self, the ageless beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Does Peter strike you as a gentle, quiet spirit uh, in the gospel? It's kind of interesting. Now this is what he values. This is of greatest value in God's sight. To conclude, you must all have the same attitude and the same feelings. Love one another, be kind and humble with one another. Do not pay back evil with evil or cursing with cursing. Instead, pay back with a blessing. This comes up so many times as the ultimate, the ideal, which is we even love our enemies. Not just our friends, love your enemies. Remember, Jesus would say, God loves his enemies. He gives rain and sun to the righteous and the wicked. And then he says, be perfect, which really means be like God, be like that. Okay, and Peter is uh, uh, trumpeting this, this same ideal. All of you must serve each other with humility. It's interesting how many times humility comes up here as uh, really a, a Christ-like quality. Remember, Jesus even said that of himself. I am humble. All of you must serve each other with humility because God opposes the arrogant but favors the humble. Be humbled by God's power so that when the right time comes, he will honor you. Turn all your anxiety over to God because he cares for you. Be alert, be on watch. Your enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring iron lion looking for someone to devour. And uh, this whole great controversy theme, we won't go into it now, but Satan is just brought up so many times here 
um, in the writings after the resurrection of Jesus. It's such an important theme. Okay, but now we're going to go off on, uh, uh, on a very specific area. And we could have done this almost at any point here in the Bible study. For those of you who are first years, we really haven't talked about this since the Gospel of Isaiah. But to me, it's, it's one of the most important subjects as it relates to the character of God. And that is the fire in the end. Peter would say, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And if we were going through James in parallel with this, James opens up very much the same way. Okay, about the trials. It is to purify. And Peter uses here the analogy of fire. And notice the, the process of life. It's like a fire that purifies, refines gold, ultimately to bring us face to face with Jesus Christ when he comes. Okay, and I want to talk about this fire a little bit. Peter would speak of it again in uh, the second book where he would say the day of the Lord will come like a thief on that day. Heaven will pass away with a roaring sound. What does that mean? Heaven will pass away. Everything that makes up the universe will burn and be destroyed. What does that mean? The entire universe is going to burn up? The earth and everything that people have done on it will be exposed. All these things will be destroyed in this way. In what way? They'll be exposed. So think of the kind of holy and godly lives you must live as you look forward to the day of God and eagerly wait for it to come. When that day comes, heaven will be on fire and will be destroyed. Everything that makes up the universe will burn and melt. Okay, that's an interesting idea. Why would heaven need to be burned up? What is this referring to? And I'll just put a few parallel passages with this and then we'll really get to the meat of, uh, I think, what is being described here. In Luke, Jesus would describe that as lightning flashes across the sky, and the word here for sky, it's the exactly same Greek word here for heavens. This lightning will flash across the heavens and light it up from one side to the other. So will be the Son of Man in his day. Could this be describing uh, the same kind of process? And in John, I mean, this is, uh, you want a clear verse on the judgment We couldn't possibly have a clearer verse. This is how the judgment works. Words of Jesus. How does the judgment work? The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Those who do evil things hate the light and will not come to the light because they do not want their evil deeds to be shown up. Wasn't that true of the life of God in human form? He came as the light of the world. Okay, People hated him. But those who do what is true come to the light in order that the light may show that what they did was in obedience to God. And we'll see as a theme as we go through this description of fire, light, and darkness that some come to the light, some come to the fire, okay? And others have exactly the opposite response. But this is how the judgment works. And these words in John 12, I think incredible. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. If people hear my message and do not obey it, I will not judge them. I came not to judge the world, but to save it. Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. And how would you finish this passage? Who's the judge? The words 
I have spoken, will be their judge on the last day. Now that's pretty incredible. How do words judge us? That that is the ultimate judge, the words of Jesus. Jesus spoke a lot of words. Which words would you choose to be the judge on the last day? Well, we, there's um, precedent for talking this way. God gave Jeremiah words. And listen to how it's described. Then the Lord reached out and touched my lips, just like he did with Isaiah. In, this, in the case of Isaiah, it was a coal. And he said to Jeremiah, listen, I am giving you the words you must speak. Today I give you authority over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to pull down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And what happened to Jeremiah? He was stoned to death in Egypt. Okay, but yet he was given words to overthrow the whole kingdom. And I think the meaning here is God gave the message to Jeremiah that was needed for that time. It was rejected, and it was the rejected message, those words, that led to the overthrow of the entire nation. Okay, even fire is used in this context. Jeremiah, because these people have said such things, I will make my words like a fire in your mouth. The people will be like wood and the fire will burn them up. And of course, we couldn't take the position that this is a literal fire that they were burned up by. This was the truth that was rejected and it burned them up, it destroyed them. In Jeremiah 23, my message is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. And I think as we try to build a picture for what this fire is, you know, the Bible is meant to be taken as a whole. If we're just using the last two chapters of Revelation and that's going to be our whole model on the fire, uh, we miss out, I think, on... I mean, the book of Revelation is made up of the entire rest of the Bible. Large portions from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Okay, we really can't understand it unless we put the entire Bible together. Here's an interesting one in Ephesians on this light, dark, and things being exposed uh, concept. Paul would say, you yourselves used to be in the darkness, but since you have become the Lord's people, you are in the light. So you must live like people who belong to the light, for it is the light that brings a rich harvest of every kind of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Have nothing to do with the worthless things that people do, things that belong to the darkness. Instead, bring them out to the light. And when all things are brought out to the light, then their true nature is clearly revealed or exposed. For anything that is clearly revealed becomes light. That is why it is said, wake up sleeper and rise from death and Christ will shine on you. Um, I'm not sure I even fully understand uh, all of these things, but I think we need to have these verses kicking around in our mind as we try to understand perhaps uh, what happens in the very end. Jesus would say, do not be afraid of people. Whatever is now covered up will be uncovered and every secret will be made known. Same thing, everything's gonna be exposed in the end. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And it's interesting, it really doesn't say God, it says the one. Okay, it's uh, assumed by the translator here that that's referring to God, but it's interesting, don't be afraid of people. Be afraid of God. How does God destroy body and soul in hell? For a penny, you can buy two sparrows, yet not one sparrow falls to the ground without your father's consent. As for you, even the hairs of your head have all been counted, so do not be afraid. He just said, be afraid, don't be afraid. God even knows the, when a sparrow falls. You are worth much more than many sparrows. Okay, so we come to this whole concept here 
of hell. And um, I was, have any of you had the process where you're working on your computer, at night you go to bed, and then Windows does an update, and you come down and you open it up, and you just lost out on the last um, bit of work you were doing on it. I had some good quotes here about hell from uh, church fathers and famous historians all the way through. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, I'm sure some of you have heard uh, some of Jonathan Edwards' uh, sermons on hell. Uh, terrifying. Okay, how are you to understand this concept? And, and I guess one thing I'd like to say is uh, I looked up an interesting poll which just talked about how many Christians believe in hell. Of course, I believe in hell. I guess the question is how do we understand hell? And uh, the great majority believe it to be a place of active and eternal punishment. Um, Adventists, since this is an Adventist institution, have uh, perhaps uh, not an entirely unique position, but uh, annihilationism, which, which is the position where, well, it doesn't last forever. Okay, so what's the message of that? We have good news. You'll only burn for minutes, hours, days, but it's not going to last forever. So uh, cheer up. Is that, uh, is that the message? Um, and I guess just I wanted to say this because uh, oftentimes when something perhaps different is presented, we right away want to uh, get upset about it. And so just have an open mind because you might hear something here that's a little different perhaps than the, the perspective uh, you might have heard previously. So how do we understand hell? Well, can we ask a question? Maybe this is too offensive. I thought about this later. Maybe I shouldn't put this in. But, you know, there was a big uh, uproar when this was discussed about uh, perhaps the torture of the terrorists who were waterboarded. And I think rightly so. Is it ever justified to torture? Could we ask the question, does God need to torture? Does God torture? What is going on for all of eternity? If, uh, I mean, how long would you last in a lake of fire? I mean, be an instant. Okay, does God need to somehow preserve our existence for the purpose of punishment? We talk about Jesus suffering that penalty. Okay, did he suffer for eternity? Um, what was it that Jesus experienced? How do we relate that to the final end of sin and sinners? Well, let's, uh, let's talk with probably the verse that is most often quoted when we think of hell. Revelation 14, third angel's message. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. We spent a lot of time in this Bible study talking about God's wrath. Could we apply it to this verse? He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. So that would seem pretty clear. Smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Don't we take the Bible just as it reads? How do we understand this? Well, again, we want to take the Bible as a whole. So let's try to do that. And passages like this, again, if we're not using our Old Testament, we're, we're not going to see the poetic language, I believe, that is used here. This uh, imagery comes from Isaiah 34, talking about Edom, which are the descendants of Esau. The rivers of Edom will turn into tar, and the soil will, will turn into sulfur. The whole country will burn like tar. Notice, it will burn day and night, and smoke will rise from it forever. Now, the Edomites were destroyed, but are they still burning? 
Is the smoke from the Edomite city still having smoke uh, ascending? Isn't the meaning here that it was it was destroyed forever? Okay, it's uh, uh, it's completely conquered. And notice the description here: the land will lie waste age after age, and no one will ever travel through it again. Owls and ravens will take over the land. If it's still burning, are you going to have owls and ravens? Um, settling there in the city. The Lord will make it a barren waste again as it was before creation. Okay, so we have to use these pictures that are described to bring all that to the book of Revelation. So I think here is the key concept for me, which is that God himself is the fire. Now there's symbolism there as well, but we have this so many times in the Bible. In Daniel 4, the Lord your God is like a flaming fire. Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. A literal fire? What does that mean? He's a consuming fire. Hebrews 10, God, the light of Israel, will become a fire. Israel's holy God will become a flame, which in a single day will burn up everything, even the thorns and thistles. Okay, so let's go all the way back here through the whole Bible study, and let's try to bring out key Instances where fire is mentioned. Let's see if we can apply that. Of course, God came as a consuming fire to Moses at the burning bush. And I love that our kids have a great uh, video on this. And after this whole encounter between God and Moses, and Moses looks at the bush, God's gone. And he picks a leaf off the bush. And uh, was it burned up? Okay, that fire was not harmful to the bush. Okay, so... God came as a fire, but it wasn't harmful to a plant in this case. Okay, then we go out to Mount Sinai. And we read that the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the Israelites like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. And several years ago, I went to a lecture where someone claimed they found that mountain. And uh, they were quite confident they'd found the right mountain because the top of it seemed uh, as if the trees had all been burned and destroyed. Was it really a fire? that came on top of the mountain? Was it like a fire? And we read that Moses, after he'd gone in, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the door of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses from the cloud. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as someone speaks with a friend. And we just read on a few verses after saying they spoke face to face, that Moses said, please let me see the dazzling light of your presence. And the Lord answered, I will make all my splendor pass before you and in your presence, I will pronounce my sacred name, but I will not let you see my face. Even though we just read, he spoke to him face to face. I will not let you see my face because no one can see my face and stay alive. And so the question is, is God saying, if you peek and see my face, I'll kill you? Or is this, is this in some sense a natural consequence that occurs uh, in coming face to face with God? What does that mean? Next chapter. Whenever Moses went into the tent of the Lord's presence to speak to the Lord, he would take the veil off. When he came out, he would tell the people of Israel everything that he had been commanded to say, and they would see that his face was shining. They were those third degree sunburns. What does that mean? His face was shining. And then he would put the veil back on until the next time he went to speak with the Lord. And we could round this out by saying that the people were very uncomfortable seeing the reflected glory of God in the face of Moses. They said, no, Moses, please put the veil on. They were uncomfortable seeing that glory of God reflected in the face of Moses. 
And of course, the Shekinah glory, right here in the tabernacle, which was just a bunch of curtains, right? It's described as a fire. Okay, when Solomon came and prayed and fire came down, uh, no description of the curtains or any part of the tabernacle ever burning up, but yet it was a fire. This one I find fascinating about Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. They disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. And they died there before the Lord. Now, what would you predict was left of Nadab and Abihu? Fire came from the Lord's presence, burned them up. Um, What do you think was left of them? We just read on. Then Moses called for Aaron's cousins and he said to them, come forward and carry away the bodies of the relatives from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. So they came forward and picked them up by their garments and carried them out of the camp. So whatever this fire was that came from the presence of God that consumed Nadab and Abihu, uh, their garments were intact. Their bodies were intact. Of course, in the end of Job, God comes out of a storm to Job. And the response of Job to seeing this was to say, in the past, I knew only what others had told me, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. Notice the response in Job. I am ashamed of all I have said and repent in dust and ashes. And we'll notice this as a theme now. When people encounter God in his glory, uh, there is a guilt that is associated with that. Isaiah is the best example. Isaiah saw God in all his glory. And his response was to say, there is no hope for me. I am doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful And I live among a people whose every word is sinful. And yet with my own eyes, I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, he didn't say, God, you're so hot. I've got to, uh, uh, I'm sweating here from, from the heat of this fire. What he was feeling was guilt. And I think what the Bible is describing all the way through, when we encounter God, when we really see him in all his glory, which I believe seeing involves seeing the beautiful nature of his character, the truth about God with great purity, we also see ourselves as we are. It's a natural, unavoidable thing. And so we experience guilt in that moment. That's what Isaiah was experiencing. But then one of the creatures flew down to me, carrying a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And of course, again, there's some symbolism here. It didn't burn his lips. It wasn't a real fiery coal. Okay, but it inspired Isaiah to give the message. What about Daniel? Daniel looked up and saw someone who was wearing linen clothes and a belt of fine gold. His body shone like a jewel. His face was as bright as a flash of lightning and his eyes blazed like fire. His arms and legs shone like polished bronze and his voice sounded like the roar of a great crowd. I was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see anything, but they were terrified and ran and hid. I was left there alone watching this amazing vision. I had no strength left and my face was so changed that no one could have recognized me. When I heard his voice, I fell to the ground unconscious and lay there face downward. Again, every time God is encountered in all of his beautiful glory, there seems to be this experience even among righteous people like Isaiah, like Daniel. And I love that with so many of these encounters, it ends this way. Then a hand took hold of me and raised me to my hands and knees. I was still trembling. The angel said to me, Daniel, God loves you. Stand up and listen. 
Okay, very similar to what happened in John, which we'll read in just a minute here, but reading on in Daniel, in one of his visions, while I was looking, thrones were in place, one who'd been living forever sat down on one of the thrones, his clothes were as white as snow, and his hair was like pure wool. His throne mounted on fiery wheels was blazing with fire, and a stream of fire was pouring out from it. There were many thousands of people there to serve him, and millions of people stood before him in the presence of this, what is described as fire. Okay, this is Daniel 7, 9, and 10. We just read on here, Daniel 7, 11. While I was looking, I could still hear the little horn bragging and boasting. As I watched, the fourth beast was killed. And if you remember when we talked about Daniel, uh, we described this as being kind of like a political entity that was consumed after the dark ages. This fourth beast was killed and its body was thrown into the flames and destroyed. You know, this isn't the end of the world. The other beasts had their power taken away, but they were permitted to go on living for a limited time. What does this mean? It was thrown into the flames and destroyed. Well, I looked up the Bible commentary that uh, is used for this church here, and it describes it this way. This represents the end of the system or organization symbolized by the horn. I like that description. It was burned up by this fire. The system was destroyed. What about Ezekiel? He saw God in all of his glory, and he described it this way. The figure seemed to be shining like bronze in the middle of a fire. It shone all over with a bright light that had in it all the colors of the rainbow. This was the dazzling light which shows the presence of the Lord. The fire was the presence of the Lord. And like everyone else, when I saw this, I fell face downward on the ground, just like Daniel and Isaiah. And of course, Jesus was bright on one occasion, the Mount of Transfiguration. He went up with Peter, James, and John, led them to a high mountain where they were there alone. As they looked on, a change came over Jesus, and his clothes became shining white, whiter than anyone in the world could wash them. And I think it's describing the very same thing. And remember, Peter kind of freaked out and said, well, let's build some, uh, let's erect some buildings or something here. And he didn't really know what he was saying. He was kind of befuddled. Okay, and John, remember, he lived with Jesus for three and a half years. Now he encounters him in all of his glory, described in the book of Revelation. And he said, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. Okay, but just like Daniel, God is right there. Don't worry. Place his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Okay, should we use all of this? information about fire to try to understand what may be going on in the very end. Is it fair to use this uh, kind of information? Well, let's talk about Lucifer. Ezekiel 28, this incredible chapter that describes Lucifer during the time before he fell. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the mountain of God and notice, and walked among the stones of fire. What does this mean? It means Lucifer dwelled in the very presence of God among the stones of fire. Which is why it's interesting to consider what is described here, what is it that consumes Lucifer, Satan, in the end? You defiled your sanctuaries. What did we talk about last time as a sanctuary? You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire from within you and it consumed you. Isn't that interesting? The fire is described as destroying Satan from within. I let it burn you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. 
And I, I like this description. I think there's a lot of basis for describing it this way, that the ultimate destructive element is not an, an extrinsic penalty from God to us, but rather it is an intrinsic property of sin that destroys. For example, this is a, one of the most spectacular passages here on this destructive fire. Isaiah 33, you really want to see how it works? I think this is perhaps the clearest passage in all of scripture. But the Lord says... Now I will do something and be greatly praised. Your deeds are straw that will be set on fire by your very own breath. You will be burned to ashes like thorns in a fire. Everyone both far and near, come look at what I have done. See my mighty power. And just uh, this next part is really incredible. Oh, I'm sorry. We're going to come back to Isaiah. I hope... I hope my uh, windows restart didn't leave out the end. I may have to grab someone's Bible here, but uh, we'll see. In James, that the destructive part is the internal property. James would say, your riches have rotted away and your clothes have been eaten by moths. Your gold and silver are covered with rust. And this rust will be a witness against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You've piled up riches in these last days. The tongue is like a fire. It is a world of wrong, occupying its place in our bodies and spreading evil through our whole being. It sets on fire the entire course of our existence with the fire that comes to it from hell itself. Isn't that interesting? And here it is. Now we missed a few verses in between. Remember in Isaiah, we just read that the fire comes within. It's started by our own breath. And it concludes this way. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Here's their question. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who's the consuming fire? God. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks what is right can. The description goes on to describe two people, two groups of people who do not want to enter into the presence of the consuming fire, of the everlasting burning. See, I think the fire really is eternal. If the fire is the presence of God, if the fire is the love, the truth, the character of God, that is is a fire that will never go out. Okay, But the suffering, uh, that aspect of things is not eternal. Okay, So the fire really does go on forever. And this theme of two groups of people, some who do not want to enter in and some who can. I mean, this is what happened at Mount Sinai, wasn't it? Moses went up. God came down as a fire on the mountain. The people were supposed to go up. They were afraid. Remember Moses said, there is no need to be afraid. Moses went up into the very presence of God. The people shaking in their boots did not. Okay, two groups of people. This is what is described in this verse in Psalms. As wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish, notice, in his presence. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. God is not two-faced. He's not treating one group of people this way and another group of people the other way. Both come into the presence of God. Some are consumed and some actually rejoice in his presence. They're happy and shout for joy. Same thing described in Malachi. The Lord Almighty says, the day is coming when all proud and evil people will burn like straw. On that day, they will burn up. There will be nothing left of them. But for you who obey me, My saving power will rise on you like the sun and bring healing. Isn't this the same thing? It is destructive to some and to others, 
It rises like the sun and brings healing like the sun's rays. You will be free and happy as calves let out of a stall. Okay, so it's, uh, again, some people love it and others can't handle it. So as we come back to this verse here in Revelation, there's perhaps some key words that we've missed from understanding this and describing these people who experience God's wrath. What is God's wrath? And that they will be tormented with burning sulfur, notice, in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. So does this mean that the angels and the Lamb here symbolized by Jesus, this is the presence of God. They're suffering in the presence of God, just as Isaiah and all of these other people have. It's, it's a guilt. It's a condemnation. It's being completely out of harmony with a God who is love personified. That is what causes the suffering. And so as we go to the last chapter in Revelation, very interesting that what John saw was what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And I heard a sermon uh, just a few months ago where uh, it was described that um, what this is, is we can look through the sea of glass and we can see hell. And we can actually see the wicked suffering in the flames and we'll be happy that we're not there. Okay, I think rather what this is describing, a sea of glass mixed with fire, is that we live in the presence of God who is described as like a fire. Just read on. They will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. They shall be, there shall be no more night. They will not need lamps or sunlight because the Lord God will be their light and they will rule as kings forever and ever. So I think in the end, we all will dwell in that fire for all of eternity, unharmed. Again, there's symbolism here. And so if we want a, a quote, here's one that I like, extra biblical, describing this process. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life. And when one chooses the service of sin, notice he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. He is alienated from the life of God. Christ says, all they that hate me love death. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence, there it is again, his very presence is to them as a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. Okay, I hate to uh, be too specific in describing exactly what happens because I don't know exactly how it happens. But I think what is being described here is not an intrinsic penalty imposed by God, but it is rather God coming as love personified and that people who are have been completely hardened against God, completely rejecting the type of person revealed by Jesus Christ, that their character perhaps uh, had been so warped by rejecting the good news about God that the one who is love to them is terrifying and they die. Okay, so um, I think in that sense, Maybe we have a good news message to describe about hell, uh, one that does not paint a picture of a God who must torture for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, please be with each one of us here that um, we all have questions. We don't understand this thoroughly, but may we each struggle, each individually, with you to come to the truth about these things of all important consequence. Give us additional light that uh, we may come into this good news about who you are 
and uh, that we'll have something good to say to those around us about you. Amen.